as I said uh, this morning, uh, we're starting a mini-series this evening on guidance. Every serious Christian has the question of the psalmist, Show me your ways, O Lord. Psalm 25, Psalm 27, Teach me your way. Psalm 86, Teach me your way. Teach me to do your will. Psalm 143. And that we could multiply the psalmist cries for help to know what God would have him do. Jesus calls us to follow him. And we want to do that. But knowing what God wants us to do in the specific circumstances of our lives can be difficult and tricky. Hence the cries of the psalmist so often, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your way. And you see, there's all sorts of ideas that permeate the Christian church of how we are to know God's will. There are phrases that people use that are perhaps commonplace but not helpful. Being in the center of God's will. God opened a door. I put out a fleece. There are phrases that they use. There are claims that people make. God told me to do this. The Lord has shown me that I'm to do this. The Lord has given me a promise. And there are situations in which sometimes those phrases are actually right because God gave them a promise and it's in his word. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's there. God has given us that promise. But there are times whenever the way that people phrase things is unhelpful and there are times when it's just wrong. There are methods for seeking God's will. Gideon putting out a fleece. Uh, relying on our feelings um, that we need to think about. Is this how God leads and guides? There are patterns that people take from the Bible. We've mentioned Gideon's fleece, but there's God speaking to give direction. There's dreams. There's visions. So how is it we're to find guidance? And this is really important because it can set the tone and the direction of our lives. It can cause us great doubt if we begin to think that I'm not doing God's will. I've missed God's will. I've missed the boat. I've taken a wrong turn and, and that's it ruined. My life ruined. And it can turn our lives upside down if we go wrong here. There are dangers for the individual and there are dangers for churches. If churches think that, that they have too much of a role in telling God's people what God's will is for their lives. And it's, huge areas of significance are affected. Think of the big ones that, that people often want guidance on. Marriage, work, a sense of purpose. And the whole aspect of how we see God is impacted here. The very character of our God. And not only that, but the very nature of Scripture is impacted here. So this is all important. So how do we know God's will? Uh, and over the next number of weeks, we want to consider this possibly in four, uh, in four uh, sermons. But this evening, we want to consider 
two things. First of all, God's sovereignty. This is really sort of an introductory point that we need to, to grasp. God's sovereignty. The truth is that God is sovereign over all things. 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 15. The blessed and only ruler, or only sovereign. He's in charge of everything. And, and we could make four, or use four words to describe it. It's absolute. It's absolute would be the first word. In Daniel 4, 35, we read, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's sovereignty is absolute. Nobody can stop him. We see even in Job 1 that Satan has to come and seek permission for what he's going to do. In Acts 2, we read that even in the crucifixion that this, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Absolute sovereignty. We could, we could multiply verses. We could spend weeks on this theme uh, alone, on God's sovereignty. We need to keep going. So it's, it's absolute. It's exhaustive. It's exhaustive. It's not just about creation. It's not just that he's sovereign in the realm of salvation. It's everything. Consider some of the, the things I've just picked at random here from throughout Scripture. The hairs on your head are numbered. Uh, Matthew 10, 38. The plans that kings make are set by God. The, the, the plans of the king's heart are, are like a stream in God's hand that he directs whichever way he wants. Think of Lydia and her travel plans that put her in Philippi in Acts 16 so that she would hear the gospel. Think of Proverbs 16 saying that the, the roll of the dice is in the Lord's hand. Think of Jesus saying to Peter, go out and find a fish and the first one you find, open its mouth and there will be the coin to pay your temple tax and mine. Think of the days of our lives set out in Psalm 139, all written down. Think of the flight of the arrow that killed Ahab, God's sovereign over the man pulling back the bowstring, the direction he pointed, the elevation, the wind that was blowing it, the gap in the armor, everything, God directing it. Exhaustive sovereignty. In Ephesians one eleven, we read, In him we were also chosen, having pre been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will everything. And so his sovereignty is absolute and it's exhaustive and it's perfect. Just simply one verse to note here. Romans 12 2 speaks of his good, pleasing and perfect will. God's sovereignty is his will, his, his direction of all things, his will, what he plans to do. And it's good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. Remember that. Remember that, it's perfect. But here, there's one more word that we need to remember. It's secret. It's secret. Here's a key thought and a key verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. There are secret things and there are revealed things. God does not tell us all the details of his plan for the universe. He does not tell us or say he will tell us all the details. He has them exhaustively mapped out. Our days are written in his book. Those are his secret things. He reveals to us what he would have us do. And that's what we need to remember. He's in charge of all things. They're all mapped out. But he has nowhere said that he will reveal them all. Instead, we are to get on with what he has revealed. We are to do those things. There are things revealed that we may follow all the words of the law. The things that are written down in the book. So, God's sovereignty. It's absolute. It's uh, exhaustive. It's perfect. And it's secret. And maybe this raises a couple of questions. One question might be, well, if God has it all planned out, why do we need guidance? Because surely there's no point. He's just decided and that's it. Um, And that asks the bigger question, well, do we have any freedom at all? And the Bible teaches both that we have human responsibility and that God is sovereign. But the Bible does not explain how those two things fit together. Remember, God is an infinite intelligence, and we have a microscopic intelligence. I figure we wouldn't understand it if he tried to explain it to us. But, but we think that there's a contradiction. That if God has planned out our future, then we're not free. Well, think of this. Did God freely create the world? Yes, he did. Did God know that he was going to create the world? Yes, he did. And so if God's knowing all that he was going to do, in a sense, didn't impact the freedom of him doing it, even though he knew that he was going to, you know, do you see, then for us, this is what Stephen Charnock says. He foreknew that he would create the world, yet he freely created a world. God's foreknowledge did not necessitate him. They didn't force him to do it. Why should it necessitate us any more than himself? And so we've got this complex truth, but we just need to focus on there are secret things. Even how this fits together is a secret thing. We've got to get on with the doing. That's our responsibility. There will not be an exam you know, do you understand how God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together? That will not be an exam question that God will ask us. Instead, he will look to see what we've done with what he told us. And then another question that somebody might have is, well, if God has it all planned out and he promises that all things work together for good, surely not even my sin matters. I can sin and God is sovereign. I don't even need really to have guidance because I can do what I like and God will sort it all out. He'll pick up the pieces like some divine maid that runs around sweeping up afterwards. Not at all. 
people have the phrase, all's well that ends well. Well, that's not something we see in the Bible, is it? All is not well that ends well. Just because God works something for good does not mean that the thing itself was in itself good. Romans 8, 28 doesn't say that all is good, does it? The crucifixion wasn't good in and of itself. The, the betrayal of Judas wasn't good in and of itself. It was wicked. Uh, and so the fact that God is sovereign doesn't overrule our requirement to be obedient. Do you see John, or Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So there's God's sovereignty. Remember those two things, God's secret uh, will. It takes in everything that happens and his revealed will. It shows us what we're to do and get on with. So God's sovereignty. The second point then is God's revealed purposes. We might call it God's revealed will, but I think purposes is just a clearer word for us. God's revealed purposes. Why are we here? What are we to do? What is God doing in my life? And I know that very often when we ask those questions, we are asking for the microscopic detail. We are looking for, whenever you've put into Google Maps, the destination and your starting point, and it gives you, at this junction, turn left, at that junction, turn right, at that roundabout, uh, take the third exit. It gives you in microscopic detail what you're to do. You're approaching uh, a change of lanes. Get into the middle lane. You know, it tells you everything. We want that from God. But God doesn't give us that sort of a map. What he gives us, you might describe better as a compass. A compass that points out our direction. No, those Google directions, although really helpful at times, are not helpful for our understanding of the world in which we're in. Where a place is and where that place is and how to get from A to B whenever the internet connection's gone. Just imagine how lost people will become when they haven't a clue how to read paper maps or navigate their own geography. So God wants us to move towards maturity. And so he teaches us to use his compass. He doesn't spoon feed us. And he does that because not only does he want to develop maturity in us, he wants us to develop trust in him that we will trust our Father's sovereignty and we will trust our Father's character. So what are the points of the compass? What are the purposes? What are the goals that God has? You know, if we're, if we're wanting to know God's will for our lives, it's helpful to know what the big aims that God has are. And as I started to work on this, I realized that it's completely overlapping with what we've looked at in Philippians. Which is why Paul, having been a Christian for 25 to 30 years, is praying for these things. Because he knows the compass points. He knows what the big areas are. And he's hungry to know God's guidance and to follow God's purposes in his life. And so, there are four things that we're going to note here as we consider God's revealed purposes. What do you think a first revealed purpose is? To know God. 
Philippians 3.10, isn't it? We've just had it. But it's why God made us. Think of Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image. And so God made mankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. In the image and likeness of God. Made to know him. Man's chief end, the shorter catechism tells us, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To know him and to know him in all of his rich greatness. We read from Jeremiah 9, and in amidst all of the, the doom and gloom of Jeremiah 9, God says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. From this morning's sermon, you see, that's, that's all the, that's the earthbound stuff. That's the, the desires of, of the body. And God says, let not them boast in those, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's what it's about. God created Adam and Eve to, to walk with him and to talk with him and to relate to him. To know him and to know his wondrous richness. That's the point of life. Sometimes people think, well, does that not make God a bit of an egomaniac that we're made to, to know him and to enjoy him and to worship him uh, as if he's vain and needs us to scratch his, his ego and pat his back? That's not it at all. He's the greatest being in the universe and he creates us as well to, to share that with us so that we can know the greatest being in the universe. It's an act of generosity that we might know him. He doesn't need, he didn't need to create the world. He didn't need somebody to pat him on the back and say, there, there, you're okay. Because he exists as a trinity and the Father thinks that the Son and the Spirit are glorious and wonderful. And the Son thinks the Father and the Spirit are majestic and the Spirit sees the Father and the Son and says, I wish you could know them. And, and all together, they say, come and look, come and look. Because they want to share the glory and the greatness of the other. This is not vanity. This is extreme generosity. You might think, well, okay, Mark, what's that got to do with guidance? Well, our circumstances are designed by him for this purpose. The ordinary, irritating, nuts and bolts, everyday grind of life and the bigger circumstances of our stories have been designed by God so that we know him and that we grow in our knowing of him. That's his purpose. And we need to remember that. So, and it all feeds into it, to it because the, the more we see God has put me here to know him and the more we try to get to him, the more we trust him in the circumstances that we're in, the more we see his sovereignty, the more we'll trust him with the secret workings, the things that he hasn't told us. We wonder, why is this happening? I don't know why is that happening. And why are these results going this way? And, and why this? And why did this happen to me now? I don't know all the microscopic details, but I know that I can trust him because I've seen something of him. He's wise and kind and powerful. 
and in this moment, he has designed this so that I can see more of who he is. I can see things here that I could not otherwise see. So God's aim is that we would know him. He would reveal himself more to us. Think of the characters in Scripture. So many, Joseph, all his messy, hurtful circumstances. But oh, does not Joseph show us that he knew God? Every time he opens his mouth to speak, he says, God, God. Uh, and, he, and he ties the question, or the, whether it's Pharaoh, or whether it's the baker, or whether it's um, the cupbearer. He ties their questions to God and, and answers it because he's been thinking about God. He knows his God. He hasn't wasted his pain. Think of Abraham. And I, Isaac asked him, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And the first words out of Abraham's mouth, and he, he breaks the rules of Hebrew grammar. He says, God himself will provide the lamb. That's, is, is, is the first thought, the thought that's been on his mind is God. God will do it. God will do it. He'll provide. He'll provide. He knows, he's used the circumstance to think about the God that he knows. Think, think of Ruth. Think of the, being a, a refugee and moving to a What did she want? To know God. The God that Naomi so imperfectly had displayed something of. She wanted to know this God. See, this is, this is what God is working at and doing. And so that's one of the great purposes that we should be focused on when we're making decisions and thinking about our ordinary day-to-day lives to know him. Secondly, well, we know where we're going from Philippians 3. To be like Christ. To be like Christ. But that's not just a Philippians 3 thing. That's we were made in God's image. Genesis 1. The image was then marred. Genesis 3. And then what do we find God doing? Sending his son in human likeness. To do what? To rescue us so that the image could be restored. And what do we find? Romans 8. Uh, Romans, Romans 8 and 28 and 29. Sorry, I've lost my... Uh, God works all things together for good that we might be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And that's where we're going. And we read in 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. To another. And then we read from 1 John 3 and verse 2. Where do we finish up? We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. God is, is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And we will finish that course and we will be like a perfectly restored piece of artwork. We shall be like him. It is our great privilege. It is our destination. But it is also the journey that we are on every day. God's working the circumstances of our lives, shaping them so that we will be shaped 
more and more into the image of Christ. And that sounds like a, a wondrously artistic thing. And we might think of a painter uh, with a palette and with a paintbrush. Probably the wrong image entirely. Think of the sculptor with a mallet and a chisel knocking lumps of rock off. I think making it. What's happening in our day-to-day -day lives is God is, is working our circumstances. Not to gently caress us, as it were, into the image of Christ. Sometimes it is that. But other times it feels more like painful surgery. We want to respond a particular way. How would God guide us in that moment? He would chisel off that angry response. He would take his, his mallet uh, to those resentful thoughts. He would close our mouths with that response that we want to give. You see, we want guidance. We want it in the microscopic detail. And then when God gets down to the microscopic detail of what you're about to say to that person, we say, oh no, no God, don't guide me there. God says, I will. I want you to work. What do you want to know to do? You want to know how to respond? Respond like my son did when he was accused and lied about and harangued and falsely uh, accused and mistreated. We are to be like Christ. Think of that Old Testament uh, requirement. What does God require of you? O man, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. That's what God requires. To walk humbly with your God. Here is the purpose, the compass point, to be like Christ. To know God. I missed a couple of lovely quotations from J.I. Packer. Here's where this helps with application and with guidance. Once you're aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Yeah, that? Once you're aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Then he says this, under this idea of knowing God. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. There's a word from this morning. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know God. To know God. To be like Christ. We might say that God is less interested in what you do. And whether you're a farmer or a pharmacist, whether you're a mum or a minister, than whether you're growing in Christ-likeness in those daily activities. It's the big goal. Third goal, and briefly, to share Christ. It's God's purpose for your day-to-day -day lives, to, to know Him, to grow like Him, and to share Christ. If our first two purposes come from Genesis 1, this third one comes from the new creation of, of Matthew uh, 28, when Christ has risen. And what does he say? He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
In Matthew 5, we're told in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. And we're to be salt. We're to be light. We're to be a city set on a hill. That's what we're to be. Our Christ-likeness isn't some sort of private museum piece that God is, is working on to put up in the museum of his art gallery to say, hmm, there, there's the likeness of my son in, in that person. It's so that we can be out in the world being the representatives of Jesus Christ, his ministers of mercy and messengers of grace to people. We're here for that purpose. In John uh, 15, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. All sorts of ways that that fruit can be understood, but part of it is the fruitfulness of the gospel spreading out. God shapes us with your story, your history, your background, your abilities, your connections. God shapes us and places us where he wants us because he's sovereign over every detail to be his ambassadors, his ministers of mercy and messengers of truth. You want guidance? What does God want me to do? To know him, to grow like him in this circumstance, in this moment, and to seek to be his ambassador where he's placed me. It may be in a hospital ward. It may be to the nurses. It may be to people in our workplace. It may be to the Ukrainians we meet. It may be to other people that we meet who are life is falling apart. Can we be a minister of mercy and a messenger of grace to them? That's why God has connected. To be one link in the chain that moves them a step further forward in their knowing of Christ. Not daydreaming about how our circumstances could be different and how much more effective we could be if things were only different. No, God has designed them and put us there for that purpose. And then fourthly, to know God, to be like Christ, uh, to, to share Christ. And a fourth one, through the church. Through the church. Our ideas of God's will there, 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 there's, there's a danger. The danger is that we can become very individualistic. What does God want me to do? Me. But God's great purpose uh, that he sets out in his word is that he is not simply in the business of redeeming individuals, but that he is building a community of people called the church. And we read over and over again in Scripture of the, the value of the church. He says in Ephesians 3, His intent was to show that now through the church the, manifest wisdom, sorry, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church. That's God's great plan. Sometimes uh, people will say things like, well, God guided me to do this and God guided me to do that. But it takes them away from the church and it takes them outside of the church and it takes them away from their support network. And in many ways, 
This is where we know and grow and serve. Not simply in this space here. We go out into the week to live for God in the places that he's put us and we come back here to share with each other so that we know God better, so that we can interact with each other, so that we can grow in Christ-likeness, so that we can be a team together bearing one another's burdens and encouraging one another and praying for one another as we seek to share the gospel and our lives interweaving with the people around us and people that you know, that another one knows, that another one has met, that we find that God is weaving things together for the sake of the glory of the gospel. And so we don't want to be individualistic as we think about what God is doing and the way he's leading us. We've got to think in terms of the church, in terms of the church as well. We don't ignore the individual, but we don't ignore the church. Of course, we need to be careful because if individualism is a problem at one end, then heavy-handed Christian leadership is a problem at the other end where Christian leaders might say, God has told me that you're to do this. And God has told me you're to do that. And the church has said, and that's, that's wrong. That's, a, that's why we need to, in later weeks, come and see how does God speak to us. But we mustn't neglect Christ's bride, the church. This is the main way that he has given for us to know and to grow and flourish and serve. And God's guidance um, connects us always to his people, whether it's here, whether it's in, in other places. This is God's will. See, it's not really a, a little dot, like a laser dot on a faraway target. You think, how are we ever going to hit that? It's quite a big target. It's quite a big target. There's our Father's kindness. He doesn't burden us with this, we've got to be so precise to get the exact target. Do I do this today or do I do that today? He says, I want you to grow in your knowledge of me today, in your relationship with me. I want you to grow in Christ-likeness today. I want you to serve Christ and share Christ today. And so we can ask ourselves, if I go here, if I do this, will I know Christ better? Will I resemble Christ more? Will I share Christ without compromise? Because we'll always say, oh, well, I'll go here and I can share Christ. And it's going to compromise our witness. Will I know God better? Will I resemble Christ more? Will I share Christ without compromise? Will I be part of Christ's great work, the church? Amen. If we're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the noble, glorious, exalted purposes that you give to us. And Lord, we confess that we would like the microscopic detail of your plan for our lives told to us. But Lord, we don't have minds big enough to take it in. And so we thank you that you give us a compass rather than a, a massive map that marks out every step of the way. And we thank you that you're big enough for us to trust you with all of the unknown things because we know 
that you are kind and good. You've proved it at the cross. And so help us to know that we can trust you with all of the unknowns, the secret things that belong to you. And so help us to get on with the things that have been revealed. And in particular, these four areas of of looking to know you more, like Paul, so long a Christian, written so much of the New Testament, hungry to know you more. Let us have that hunger to know you more in our daily activities, not just for it to be a a Sunday thing, but to, to know your help and your presence and your wisdom as we go through each day and to grow in Christ-likeness in the awkward, repetitive, ordinary stuff of daily life, out through the mud and gutters of the farm, in through the conflict and frustration of of work life, uh, in through the repetitive tasks of home life, wherever Lord, you've placed us in amongst uh, people who uh, frustrate us and disappoint us at times. In amongst all of that, help us to be your Christ-like ambassadors, uh, being salt and light, a city set on a hill. And Lord, thank you that you have placed this, this family of your people, the church, to be a refreshment center for all of us. And Lord, we pray that we would not Um, seek to live out your purposes separated from the family that you have placed us in. Father, lead your people in this week. You know all that lies ahead and let them know that maybe more importantly that you know them. That you know them. And you have the days lovingly planned out for them and you will provide all that they need Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.